Lord God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would be present with us today, that you would encourage us today and that you would challenge us today, and that you would continue to make us more like your son Jesus even today. Lord, may these words somehow miraculously be your words to us. As we turn to your scriptures, we pray that you would speak and that we might hear, that we might respond, and that we might be changed. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, Lee Strobel tells the story, how can I tell you the difference God has made in my life? My daughter Allison was five years old when I became a follower of Jesus, and all she had known in those five years was a dad who was profane and angry. I remember I came home one night and kicked a hole in the living room wall just out of anger with life. I am ashamed to think of the times Allison hid in her room to get away from me. Five months after I became a Christian, that little girl went to my wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy at age five. What was she saying? She's never studied the archaeological evidence regarding the truth of the Bible. All she knew was her dad used to be this way, hard to live with, but more and more her dad is becoming different. And if that is what God does to people, then sign her up, even at age five. And Strobel concludes, God changed my family, God changed my world, God changed my eternity. You see, the reality is that part of what we're doing here is that we're hoping for change. We're hoping that we can be transformed. We're hoping that God can still mold us and shape us and make us better. But of course, that is the secret, too. It has to be God. It has to be God working in us and around us and through us. Because the truth is that it's Jesus, ultimately, who transforms and redeems and recreates. It's He who makes us become more like Him. What's more, he's also the goal, not just the means, but the ends. We are to love more like Jesus loves. We are to forgive more like he forgives. We are to include more like he includes. We are to help more like he helps. The goal is that we are being changed to become more like him, to act more like he acted to help more like he helped. And what we call this goal and process and means and mission and lifestyle is discipleship. This is how we are transformed so that we too can become more like Jesus. And it's to this end that we are currently in a series trying to understand what it means for us to be not just Christians but disciples. Last week, we remembered how disciples work to become more like their rabbis, which is why disciples spend so much time with their teachers, their rabbis, so that they can learn what they knew, so that they can do what they did, so that they can emulate, so that they can become more like them. 
And of course, this is also what we see in the disciples of Jesus, listening and learning from him, practicing what they saw him do, working to know him better so that they can be more like him. Not just so that they can know what he knows, but so that they can be more like him. In the same way as modern disciples, we listen and learn, we practice and pray, we work and we worship so that we also can become more like Him. But for that to happen, we need to be paying attention. We need to spend more time with Him. We need to simply recognize that that actually is the goal. We need to hear what he teaches. We need to see what he does. We need to feel what he feels so that we can follow him better, so that we can become more like him. And it's with that in mind that I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 43. Uh, This is going to take place right at the beginning of the Gospel of John. It's right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What's more, our passage kind of breaks itself into three shorter passages, three little vignettes, if you will. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to read a section, and then afterward I want us to talk about it and see if we can't find how Jesus changes things, engages in the situation, and then builds more trust through this. And then maybe at the end we can figure out what this has to do with us as well. And so we'll begin in this first little story, John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And we'll stop there for just a moment. Okay, as our passage picks up, we again find Jesus calling a new disciple. This time, Philip, come follow me. And we talked about this last week. Those are words of discipleship, words of kind of institution almost. It means, I think you have what it takes to be my disciple. Now, what's interesting here is that after Philip is called, Philip then goes out and finds his friend Nathaniel and brings Nathaniel to meet Jesus. More than that, he tells Nathaniel that Jesus is the one that they've been looking for, the Messiah. And that is helpful for us to notice. Not just that Philip brings Nathaniel in, but that these two have been on the lookout for the Messiah. They have a hope, they have an expectation that the Messiah is coming, and therefore they are expectant that they will see this Christ. And for Philip, he's sure he's found him. 
Of course, Philip also mentions that Jesus is of Nazareth. And Nathaniel, in kind of a rather snarky way, remarks, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, what may be helpful here is later in the book of John, we find out that Nathaniel is from Cana. That'll make sense in a minute. But Cana is about 10, 9, 8 miles from Nazareth. And so our assumption is that not only would Nathaniel have known about Nazareth, but there's a good probability that this was kind of a, one of the rival towns. How can anything good come from South Lake? That's ridiculous. That being said, Nathaniel still follows Philip to meet Jesus, and Jesus seems to already know all about Nathaniel. And it's at this point that Nathaniel begins to be transformed because suddenly he believes. And we see this as his tone changes and, and as he addresses Jesus by title, Rabbi, Son of God, King of Israel. Something about Jesus' encounter interaction with Nathaniel has caused Nathaniel to do a 180. He has gone from questioning Jesus' background and credentials to acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God. And Jesus simply tells Nathaniel that he will see even greater things than this. Of course, remember what we're trying to do here. We're trying to look at this passage through the lens, through the eyes of the disciples, and as such, we're trying to figure out how do we become more like Jesus here? How do we do what he does? And in this first vignette, I can't help but wonder if we too are to be helping people come to know Jesus better, helping them to be transformed by Jesus. Jesus works with these early disciples, mentoring them and molding them, and they are transformed. Should we be doing that too? working with people, bringing them closer to Jesus, helping them get to know him better. With that, let's keep reading. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it, the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. And we'll stop there for a moment. This section begins with, on the third day. That always should be a bit of a red flag to you. 
Uh, remember, the gospel writer John wrote his gospel a little bit later than the others, uh, and he also tended to be a little bit more circumspect, a little bit more complex in his writing. And therefore, if John uses a phrase like, on the third day, that should be on neon lights for you. He is intentionally pointing us toward the cross and the resurrection. Therefore, as we start reading this section, we are already primed that John is talking about more than just a party that runs out of wine. But of course, that's also what this passage is about, and that is what happens. They run out of wine. Jesus is at a wedding feast with his disciples, with his family, and suddenly there's nothing else to drink. And his mother comes to him and, as mothers do, wants him to fix it. Jesus remarks that his hour has not yet come, again, echoing the cross and the resurrection. That being said, Jesus does enter into the problem, instructs the servants to fill the six large jars of water, invites them to draw some of the liquid out, take it to the master of the banquet. Of course, when he drinks it, he is amazed that this isn't just wine, but it's good wine. In fact, it's so notable that he then pulls the bridegroom aside to compliment him. But notice what is transformed in this passage. Sure, sure, the water gets turned into wine, and that's a neat trick. But let's also recognize what would have happened if Jesus hadn't have stepped in. The bridegroom would have experienced shame and sadness at being so unprepared for this celebration. It would have been an embarrassment. It would have been humiliating. And yet by entering into this situation and by doing this work of transformation, now this bridegroom is receiving more honor than he would have if he had just simply been normally prepared. Because he brings out the better wine at the end of the party. But also let's recognize that again, Jesus' transforming work brings out more trust, more belief. Notice again, when our author informs us that this is the first sign of Jesus, there's seven in the Gospel of John, we are again told that the disciples believe in him. And obviously, this is more than that they believe he exists. That's pretty self-evident for them. Instead, this is that they're learning to trust him more. They're, They're learning to trust that he is who he says he is. They're learning to trust that he is the kind of person who transforms people. More than that, when Jesus sees an impossible situation, an embarrassing situation, a humiliating situation, Jesus steps in to help. I wonder if that's what we as disciples are called to do. How can I risk myself on someone else so that they won't feel embarrassed, so that they won't lose face, so that they won't be humiliated? How can I step into that gap? like Jesus does. Okay, one last passage, and then we'll try and tie this whole thing together. Chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coin of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. 
His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Amen. Okay, again, we find Jesus and the disciples. They're traveling together, this time to the temple. It's about to be the Passover. And as Jesus enters into the temple courts, he finds people selling all sorts of animals in the temple courts. And he finds money changers there as well. And so he fashions a whip and drives them out of the temple in one of maybe the most amazing and chaotic scenes of the whole Bible. Well, at first glance, this doesn't seem like a very Jesus-y thing to do. And remember, we're trying to be more like Jesus. So we need to understand what this passage is saying, because otherwise you need to start, you know, tearing up your chairs and fashioning whips. And I don't want you to do that. So let's recognize what is actually happening here. You see, the job of these money changers and animal sellers was sort of a necessary evil. It was kind of important, at least a little bit. If you were going to go to the temple to offer a sacrifice, you could either try and bring your sacrifice all the way there from wherever you live, or option two, sell the cow, sell the sheep, go get money, bring it all the way to the temple, and then buy something there, and then you can offer that instead. It's just kind of simpler. Uh, now, never mind the fact that there was a significant markup. Never mind the fact that there was a substantial, if not exorbitant, exchange rate. Never mind the fact that a lot of people were getting very, very rich out of worship on this. But that being said, maybe the bigger issue is that they have no business being in God's temple for this little service of theirs. Bartering and trading and haggling doesn't seem appropriate for worship. Trying to worship in the middle of a bazaar would be rather bizarre. To make matters worse, they were doing this in the court of the Gentiles. This is where those who were far off are brought near to God. Only there's no room for them in this place. And therefore, we're not surprised when Jesus, who knows the holiness of God, takes offense that God's name is being profaned in this way. And so Jesus transforms in this case, the temple, by cleansing it because of his love for God and his love for people. Of course, that upsets more people than just those who got kicked out, which is why we see those who were used to this situation, maybe even benefiting from these situations, coming to ask Jesus by what authority he does all of this. Jesus remarks that if the temple is destroyed, he'll re rebuild it again in three days, but again, remember, Jesus is talking not about the temple, but himself, his death and his resurrection, which is what the disciples remember after he's raised from the dead. It's only then that they put all of this together and understand and believe. But again, notice again, Jesus is transforming something, making it more holy, cleansing the temple to bring more glory to God. And I wonder, again, we, 
as disciples, are we also supposed to be doing this work of making things more holy, of revealing more glory of God? Looking back at this whole passage now, as we start to kind of tie this whole thing together and come to an end of a sermon, as we start moving toward a point even, it's interesting that Nathaniel calls Jesus Rabbi, King of Israel, and God's Son. Because we see each of those titles revealed in these stories. He becomes a rabbi to Philip and Nathaniel as he invites them to follow and be changed. He becomes the king of Israel who bestows a transformational blessing on a wedding party. He's the son of God as he takes seriously his father's temple's worship. And as he sets to work, returning it to holiness. Rabbi and king and son. But more than that, since we are striving to become better disciples, what do we see in Jesus that we can emulate here? And it strikes me. Jesus seems to believe that people and situations can be changed for the better. It strikes me. Jesus seems to engage and work in those people and in those situations. And Jesus seems to invite and even elicit a deeper trust in him. And so very briefly, I want to work back through those three little stories and see this pattern over and over again. One of the most remarkable things about Jesus in all of these stories, but starting with that first story, is that Jesus believes that people can be changed. He encounters Philip and Nathaniel and believes that they have what it takes to be more like him. Even with all Philip's passion, and Philip's probably Greek as well, which might be trouble later, Jesus invites him to follow and be changed. And then there's Nathaniel, a little bit of a skeptic, and yet again, Jesus calls him out, engages with him, and transforms him. Not only do they come to a deeper trust in Jesus in this passage, but Jesus seems to allude that this will only continue to grow. As we work to become better disciples, do we believe that people can be changed? Are we willing to do the work of entering into their lives in hopes that they find Jesus better? And do we encourage and invite them to grow deeper in their faith? But it's not just people. Because Jesus also believes that situations can be changed. Jesus sees how this wedding party is about to become an embarrassment, and yet he also knows that it can be fixed. And again, we see Jesus kind of entering into this situation quietly and yet deftly, helping the bridegroom out of a humiliating situation. And almost no one even knows that Jesus does anything about this. And yet the disciples with a front row seat have seen not just a miracle, but how Jesus has brought honor to a situation which would have been shameful. And the disciples learn to trust him even more. Again, as we do the work of trying to become better disciples of Jesus, do we believe situations can change for the better? Are we willing to enter into those situations quietly and yet purposefully to try and bring Jesus into those situations as well? Do we invite a deeper trust of Jesus? This is when it starts getting harder. 
I don't know, maybe I'm cynical, maybe I'm apathetic, but lots of times I'll see people situations and, and other kinds of situations, and I'm thinking, that's a mess. There, there's no hope there anymore. Or there is hope, but it's not my job. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus seems to believe something can be done about this, and then he enters into that situation and starts working to fix it. Even the big problems, more systemic problems, a more complicated problem. Jesus goes to the temple, and this has been a problem for so long that it's not really a problem anymore. It's just, it's just normal. It's just status quo. It's become institutionalized. And we know this because people are upset when Jesus cleans it up. If it wasn't normal, that wouldn't be a problem. Jesus, everyone in the temple would have been like, thank you, Jesus, for cleaning up the mess. We, we knew that wasn't supposed to be there, but we haven't done anything about it yet, so thanks for helping us. That's what they should have said, but they didn't. What gives you the authority to do this? Because we wanted it that way. And yet here again, we see Jesus believing that even a mess like that can be changed, that it's worth trying to clean up a mess like that. And again, he enters in and starts going to work. Of course, Jesus is really working on a much deeper problem when he works to clean the temple, because he knows ultimately he will become the one who sacrifices, who is a better sacrifice to really cleanse much, much more than just the temple. But at this point, he works to bring change, and again, eventually the disciples come to a deeper trust. But again, if we are those disciples, if we are disciples, do we believe that bigger problems can be changed? Are we willing to set to work and bring Jesus into those places? Do we trust Jesus even in those big areas? I'm struck by Jesus' faith and hope that things can be different. But I'm also struck by how he engages in those places because he trusts that God is faithful. I wonder if we could do a better job of following him in that work. Let's pray. Lord God, you call us to be disciples. You call us to follow you. You call us to become more like your son, Jesus. And we recognize that we have a long way to go. But it can start even now. It can start even today. Lord, help us look to Jesus with an eye for how we might be changed. How can, we, how can we do the things that he did? How can we say the things that he taught? How can we believe what he believes? How can we be changed? And how can we partner with him in what he's doing already in this world? Lord, we'll need your help. We'll need a lot of your help. And yet that's also the promise of Scripture. So Lord, help us to follow you better.
We pray all these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.